1: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Madella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Madella, the mark of the fight. Brick Responsibly, Beer Reported by Crown Airport, Chicago, Illinois. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid Conversations about Connecting and Communicating.
2: Most of what happens in our brain, not only, and there's a lot of reasons to sleep, is to basically trim down our memories, to mow the lawn of memories, so we wake up the following day with a clean slate, able to be smarter, happier, and better people.
1: That's Scott Small. As director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University, he helps patients with memory loss, people who forget too much, But he's lately come to appreciate that some forgetting is in fact essential to our being able to function at all. And he's written a book about it called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. This is going to be fun talking to you today because your book Forgetting, your idea that forgetting is a gift is probably something that most of us will say, what, in what ways is it it a gift?
2: Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say, Alan, is that it was a surprise to me as well. Uh, (laughs) In other words, I would say even broader, it was a surprise. It is a surprise to the field. And by the field, I mean people like me who have dedicated our careers to trying to cure memory loss in in, in association with disease. Even in the basic sciences, there's always been the sense that forgetting is bad. Uh, we should fight it tooth and nail, and and more memory is always better. So that's been the really the canon. Uh, and only in the last 10 years has that been shifted. Uh, and so it was interesting to me, and, and hopefully I articulate that and why that is
1: in the book. You begin early in the book with a reference to the story by Borges. The Memorias, yeah. Could, did he make up that word? I'd never heard that word before.
2: Uh, actually that's a great question it sounds latin to me he was a polyglot uh it sounds like it could be the memory guy but i actually don't know (laughs) formally and the guy
1: wakes up one day after hitting his head and he can remember everything everything and most of us would would be envious of that but even in the story problems occur right
2: yeah, and uh, as I say, I think later in the chapter, it's interesting to me, as someone who enjoys the arts, that often artists understand the brain more intuitively and quicker than us scientists. Why is that? How is that? Well, I, I why is that? I think they're just sensitive. Maybe that we tend to get bogged down in details. But in this specific case... What Borges intuited and what he clearly articulated through this wonderful short story is that that fantasy we all sometimes have, if only I can have a perfect photographic memory, that superhero, in fact, illustrated through this Argentinian cowboy it is a curse. It is not something we should be wishing for.
1: You say somewhere, I think, in the book that forgetting allows us to better record and rep- recognize representations of the outside world. Is that the forest for the trees problem?
2: That is completely the forest from the trees. And if you think about it, we all extract jests in our daily lives. We don't get obsessed over details. And it turns out that facial recognition, something that we we do so intuitively, it seems the easiest thing in the world, requires us to extract a gist uh, to see the forest, in this case, the face, not from the trees, which in this analogy would be the individual components of a face. And it turns out that if we were to obsess over the details, by having too much memory on details, uh, we wouldn't be able to recognize our close friend or spouse in the morning, in the evening. Back to Funis, that's one of the things he couldn't do very well. He couldn't recognize his own face in the morning. And in the Mm. evening, because after all, in the evening, his, his brain was seeing more facial hair, right? An unshaved beard.
1: So the details aren't the same and therefore the face is different.
2: Exactly. If you were to just have someone draw that face, someone who didn't know better, they would say different people. That's what happens in our equivalent equivalent to the cameras in our brains. But yet our brain higher up in the areas of the brain that decode that say same person. No problem.
1: You know, it's funny. About an hour ago, I was in a taxi cab, and I had an experience that was a little like Funes in the Borges story. On the little television screen in the uh, in the cab was a still picture of a balcony on the on the second floor of a motel. That kind of a narrow balcony, right? And instantly, I started recalling all the scenes of balconies that I had seen in movies in the past year. And this may have been because I was thinking about talking with you a little bit later in the day. But I didn't like the experience. I couldn't stop this flow of images.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I will say, I'll use that perhaps to quickly insert, because I have to emphasize that this is not a book that's saying memory is bad. Right. That blood of information, the Proustian moment. It's often wonderful being able to have the flood of memories of our childhood, of our first love. That's important. So the, the point of the book is not that memory is bad. The point of the book is that we need our normal memory, not our pathological memory that occurs in disease. We need that normal memory to balance out our normal memory, to sculpt it as you were as it, as it were, to able to be smarter, happier, and better people.
1: Yeah, I think the, early in the book, you get the idea that it's, it's very important to have a certain amount of forgetting taking place where you can't carry on your normal life. I think you say somewhere in the book that sleep is has, has its primary purpose to forget.
2: So it turns out that that idea that, you know, one of the mysteries of life, we know why we drink, we know why we need to eat, but a third of our lives were spent in a vulnerable position in mm. sleep, dormant. And why is that? A great mystery that hasn't been completely solved. But the idea that we sleep in order to smart forget that term was introduced by Francis Crick. Francis Crick is one of the duo who won the Nobel Prize in the 1960s for figuring out the structure of DNA. Right. Probably the most incredible findings of ever. And he said, that's easy. Let me now turn my attention to sleep
1: and to consciousness. (laughs) I didn't know he had something to say on sleep. That's interesting.
2: He he did. And he has this this sort of thought-provoking paper published in 1983. Again, a joy for me to be able to read it in retrospect. It was provocative. It was interesting. It was listened to because it was him, but yet no one really knew if it was true. So his students... 30, 40 years later, only then were his students able to uh, be uh, endowed with the right tools to formally test this idea. And it turns out that he was right. Most of what happens in our brain, not only, and there's a lot of reasons to sleep, is to basically trim down our memories, to clean the slate, (laughs) to mow the lawn of memories, so we wake up the following day with a clean slate.
1: The idea that we need remembering, we need forgetting, we have to hit the right balance between the two. And I I get the impression that you make a clear distinction between forgetting of a pathological kind and, and distinguishing that not only from the useful forgetting we've been talking about, but also distinguishing it from forgetting that occurs to most of us because of our age. As we grow older, we tend to forget a little more. But that's different from, say, Alzheimer's, right?
2: Right. So first of all, it's a really important question because it's important that I clarify at the get-go, Alan, that they're really I'm making a very clear distinction from what I call pathological forgetting, the forgetting I see in my patients in my clinic at, Al- at Columbia University. And these are patients who have pathological forgetting which one easy way to identify it or to to define it is anything that worsens from one's baseline then when i'm presented with a person a patient who complains of that then i need to decide is it a disease or is it just the normal wear and tear of aging both of them cause pathological forgetting but of different sorts if i could give an analogy alan i wear glasses reading glasses because my vision suffered the normal wear and tear of aging. It's not a, dis- a disease. It occurs in all of us, but yet it's pathological uh, vision, and therefore I need these corrective glasses. Not a disease, or is it a disease like Alzheimer's disease?
1: The way you went about distinguishing whether or not there was Alzheimer's or age-related forgetting sounded very interesting to me. as, As far as I understand it, it had to do with the fact that one of those attacks one part of the hippocampus and the other one attacks another part. So I guess if you could show that, you could show that there were different conditions. I guess we shouldn't fling around the word hippocampus without... You're describing it a little bit. I'm very attached to the hippocampus because I was once told by a researcher who was a very attractive person that I, after I came out of the MRI machine, she said, You have a very plump hippocampus.
2: <laughs> well, first of all, it's an occupational hazard to talk with me because what I do for a living is evaluate someone's brain, and cognitive abilities. And the second I just even chit-chat with someone socially, I can't help but start wondering, well, how good is that part of the brain? How good is that other? And just hearing you and knowing of, uh, a little bit about you, I know that your hippocampus is plump. We don't always need sophisticated tools like MRIs to, to arrive at that conclusion. But but what does a plump hippocampus mean? What, what do we mean when we say someone's hippocampus is functioning well? I think we're actually lucky that we have the perfect analogy. We have the, uh, the personal computer that I'm sitting in front of. I, I gather you are as well. And so if I type a document, ty- typing something on a document, and I turn my computer off, I've lo- lost that information forever. That's memory loss. If I want to save that information and store it in my hard drive, keep memory alive, I need to click save, right? Every computer program has that click save function, which effectively takes that information from my screen and moves it to my hard drive. That, in a very simple sense, is what the hippocampus does. The hippocampus is the click save function in our brains. And so if there are few people, I've met a few of these people who really, because of an accident or, or, or an infectious disease, their hippocampus is removed. If you think about it for a second, if you were to talk to them, they their memory is okay because they're as long as their their computer is on, the memory's in their memory in in their minds. But the second they're pulled away for a few minutes, or if you see them tomorrow, it's like they've seen you for the first time. They can never save any new information.
1: I know. I interviewed someone like severely damaged hippocampus, and. He could remember with great detail the route he took to school when he was a child, but he couldn't remember what we had talked about three minutes earlier. He would tell me the same story over and over Um, again.
2: If I may, I'll I'll use that example. So that patient that you met, the one I met, they had no click save function. They could not move any new information into their memory stores, and therefore they could not remember anything new. But what they did have, what your patient had, my patient had, was an intact ability to click open. So let's go back to the computer Mm. metaphor. You type something in your computer, a document. You click save. It's in your hard drive. You come back tomorrow. You want to open it and edit it. You, again, go to that function in your computer uh, app that says click open or open or search and it opens up all your files and you find that right file. That's the retrieval mechanism of your computer. And that's a retrieval mechanism, which more or less uh, uh, is, um, its function is localized to the frontal cortex right behind our foreheads. So I can tell you already that if you're, that person you were talking to can faithfully recall old information, his click open function was normal. Again, just like I told you I do, anyone I meet, I can tell you that his prefrontal cortex was functioning normally. And that's a simple way of thinking about how memory is saved, stored, and retrieved in the brain.
1: Aside from the uh, shock of learning that forgetting is important to our life, the big news for me is the idea that you're going after Alzheimer's, for instance, in a different way. The enemy was thought to be amyloid plaque and not so much anymore as the proteins that may contribute and cause amyloid plaque. I'm, and I'm saying it clumsily. How would you say it?
2: No, no. That was actually spot on. The the analogy or metaphor we use there is thinking of a f- the fire and the smoke, right? The fire is what triggers a disease what causes cancer what causes alzheimer's and that has that causes smoke uh you know various uh effects of the fire that are detrimental in 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 that analogy uh for the longest time people thought that amyloid plaques these gummy protein aggregates in our brains is the fire it's what is the upstream to everything is it's what triggers everything else ultimately the memory loss and the dementia. Now there's a growing awareness that that might be wrong, that amyloid plaques might be the smoke, not the fire, because there are a number of pathways in our neurons that seem to be fundamentally broken in Alzheimer's that lead to plaques, but lead to many other things. And that's important for therapeutics because I think it's sort of intuitive that if you want to really intervene and cure it's better to go after the fire, the root source, not just the smoke. Right.
1: You you don't want to put out the smoke. You want to put out the fire. Exactly. So what's upstream of amyloid plaque?
2: Let me quickly say, when I say that the amyloid hypothesis, the hypothesis that stipulates that amyloid plaques is upstream to everything, it's the fire. When I say that that hypothesis is not completely right, that's the growing awareness among many of us. But there are still some in the field who legitimately think that it's still true. So with that disclaimer, the pathway that seems to be linked to alzheimers and to seem really seems to be there first and foremost is among the maybe 100 pathways that are in our neurons, it's a trafficking pathway. It's called trafficking because in many ways our neurons and every cell can be thought of as a train system or a subway system if you're a New Yorker or live in a big metropolitan area. You have different stations. In each station, proteins need to be delivered. And the ability to traffic proteins to each station is critical for the function of neurons in any cells.
1: So how do you deal with the pathway instead of the protein itself? What, 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 what is the pathway?
2: So the pathway is, is sometimes called the trafficking pathway. And then it, once you have the pathway, what I'm, what I'm articulating is really the, um, the, the way modern uh, drug discovery and pharmacology is thought of. Let's first think of a pathway. Once we have the right pathway, it's sort of like a mechanic. Let's find the right part of a car. Is it the engine? Is it the braking system? Once we get to the right part, then let's see if we can try to intervene. So that's exactly what we and others are doing for the trafficking pathway. Everyone knows the trafficking pathway is what's fundamentally broken. Now let's use Clever Insight, the, uh, me- the, the biomedical enterprise that brought us quickly in vaccination for COVID. Can we now mobilize all those efforts to try to fix this pathway?
1: When we come back from our break, Scott Small describes how researchers can now turn up memory and separately turn up forgetting, at least in mice, and how this research may one day help patients whose memories are either too dim or, in the case of PTSD, too vivid. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash Vivid.
0: In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Sierra University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
1: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Madela, the mark of the fight. Brick responsibly. Beer reported by Crown Airport Chicago, Illinois. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Scott Small. You tell in your book about encounters with your patient called Carl, and he seems to have been a spunky patient. Then you seem to have admired that. But he he left us before he had the advantage of some of your insights and was, as I remember, kind of envious of the Borges character who could remember everything—he wanted yeah. a super memory. He did. Do you now know something that you wish you knew then that you could have passed on to him?
2: Yes, and, and in fact, dedicate the book to him in in some ways because he—it it was through patients like him who uh, were clearly thoughtful. And what he had really was just the kind of pathological forgetting that occurs with normal aging. So he didn't have Alzheimer's and he was super smart. And he was a, he was a New York city lawyer. So very (laughs) argumentative, the kind of people I love (laughs) as a New Yorker myself. And, um, he, and we had wonderful discussions and, um, you know, I uh, at the time he he kept on saying, you know, I, I'll try anything, give me anything, and he tried a lot of things, even things that you wouldn't expect of someone like him, including meditation and everything else. And I am saddened. He he died ultimately of of heart disease. This was a few years ago, way before this new science of forgetting uh, really validated what. The Borges story had said so. He thought the Borges story was just a nice parable on human, on hubris. He said, "Yes, I get it. Borges is very clever, but I still want that super memory. It will help me in my in my in in my world. And uh, I am sad that I don't have a I, I I I didn't have at the time what I have now is a better argument." To, hope to perhaps have convinced him that the new science of forgetting really does substantiate the point with a lot of good examples of why you need your forgetting to balance your memory.
1: One example that really struck me was the experiment with mice, where once they learned a the maze, if you changed one little aspect of the maze, it took them a while to relearn it. But it didn't take them. Tell me if I have this right. It, it took them more time to learn the maze if you turned up the memory knob on their on their memory. Yeah.
2: So, and, but so, if you turned
1: up the forgetting knob, they got it quicker. Is that right?
2: That's right. That's exactly right. So, so the first thing, the, the the most important thing that the new science of forgetting has taught us, it used to be thought, and I think you might know that I trained with Eric Dell, the luminary who really described a lot of the mechanisms that mediate memory. My, and my, used friend, to be my
1: friend and someone I admire very much.
2: Yes, and I feel the same way. Uh, he's truly my academic father, and we still talk regularly. He's, he's just wonderful. And so um, it was all in the first 50 years into the science of memory, people like him isolated a group of mechanisms, pathways in the cell that govern memory. And then everyone figured, in the old view, that forgetting was just a, a faulty memory mechanism, a rusting of those pathways, right? But then what happened in the last 10 years or so, investigators found a completely separate group of mechanisms or pathways that are dedicated to forgetting, which allows one to ask the question, Did nature just give us these mechanisms for no Hmm. good reason? Now, it doesn't always mean that there is a good reason, and it turns out there is. But back to your question, uh, what it allowed investigators who study animal models uh, using their tools, they can effectively turn up and turn down memory or forgetting separately. And that was never able that was never able to be done until we found these mechanisms that
1: mediate forgetting. And so how do you the, do it? How do you turn it up and down? So the way you could
2: so you identify the pathway, then you identify the key protein in that pathway, and in a mouse model or in a fly, and I think you know that mice and flies are very similar to us when it comes to to memory. I've and,
1: noticed that from many people I've met.
2: <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, it, it is an interesting, and it's a. It, 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 if it's humbling, it should be. Where I, I say in my book, if I show a neuron to the most experienced neuroscientist, a neuron of a fly, a mouse, and a human, you can't tell the difference, wow. and the proteins in these cells are nearly identical. Hmm. There are a lot of reasons why we are different, but when it comes to learning and memory, we're similar. So we can use those. We can. Um, use those animals to really understand a little bit about us, although we can also learn about us through certain conditions. And so what you can do, what Eric Kandel and many others have learned to do, is you can actually turn up particular pathways by replenishing a particular neuron with more of the forgetting protein, increasing forgetting, or more of one of the key components of the memory pathways and that will turn up memory. And so when you think about, okay, you learn how to navigate from home to one's office, although in this last year we've been mainly at home, uh, that's navigation, that's learning a maze, right? If suddenly there's a detour and you need to modify, not learn from scratch, just modify that route home or route to work, intuitively, people will say, well, I need more memory to do that. I just keep on tacking on more and more memory. It turns out that the more efficient way and the quicker way to learn that new route is by remodeling. So if you think of a new home, you first have to sculpt down the old memory, and only then do you build up the the new memory. And that sculpting down is forgetting. So the quickest way to learn a modified maze is by having the forgetting knob turned up.
1: The notion of memory being linked so strongly to emotion can help a memory stick. The bad part of that is when the emotion is very damaging and overwhelming, like a war experience and you get PTSD. Is this work going to be helpful in remediating that?
2: I I think so, And, and and in some ways it already is. You know, it's interesting how we talked earlier how artists get to the brain sometimes faster than scientists, and often drugs are tested and used because they're shown to work before we completely know how they work. And one of the benefits I think of the new science of forgetting is that it's beginning to clarify why certain clinical trials are being tested for things like MDMA, otherwise known hmm. as ecstasy, for PTSD patients. Because only in the last five years, Alan, has there been greater clarity on what MDMA does. It turns down the areas of the brain that store our fear memories. So basically, it's a form of forgetting, at least temporarily. And so we can sort of uh, retrofit what Doctors have been testing MDMA because they thought it might be beneficial. And we now understand at the basic science why it probably will be beneficial. If PTSD is truly a disorder of too much memory, the inability to let go of fear memories, MDMA and other drugs like it effectively do that, among other
1: things. When you talked about fear memories, I thought of the amygdala. Is that where... You're yes. getting a lot of fear.
2: So, yes, the amygdala. It, it So, everyone knew for a long time that the amygdala is involved with learning new fear memories, but we, we didn't know until the last 10 years or so is that the, me- the amygdala also stores these memories, mm. right? It's one thing to say that it could just be the click save function and the memories are stored elsewhere, but fear memories obviously stored throughout the brain, but the hub of that memory storage, of the fear memory storage, is in that small little amygdala. It's called the amygdala because it looks like an almond. Amygdala is almond in Latin, and it actually uh, resides right in front of the hippocampus. Mm.
1: You wrote in the book that chimps have a larger amygdala than bonobos, which, which, which kind of sounds like it explains a lot of the difference in their behavior.
2: Well, it is true that finally people were able to examine the brains. You talked about an MRI, under an MRI of a group of chimpanzees and bonobos. And the reason why that's interesting and the reason why it was relevant to that particular chapter is because chimps and bonobos are evolutionary twins. They're almost identical genetically. In fact, if there was a trio, a triplet, we would be the third (laughs) triplet. We're all very, very similar from an evolutionary point of view. But what's interesting about that is usually when animals are very close evolutionarily, they're also very similar in their behaviors and their patterns. Chimps and bonobos are diametric opposites on what's called their social temperament. Chimps are what we would call, although not describing them, antisocial, and bonobos are prosocial. So bonobos, as described by classic primatologists, are altruistic. They're compassionate. They're friendly. They make love more than war. They have uh, matriarchies where, where where the females can be their leaders. That's very different than the chimps' world. And the question is why. And one reason why came out of those really recent studies that finally were able to do a comparative anatomy of chimps and bonobos. It the main the most salient difference is the, the is the size of The amygdala. So, if you have a plump hippocampus, maybe you should hope that you don't have a plump amygdala, Alan, (laughs) because a plump, (laughs) a plump amygdala might mean that you've lived in in a world that was full of fear and rage, like the world of a chimp. And so, if the amygdala is the store of too much fear memories, might it be true? that one of the reasons why bonobos are pro-social, one of the reasons uh, is because they have not suffered uh, fear and rage throughout their evolutionary lives.
1: Well, I, for one, am going on an amygdala (laughs) diet tomorrow. As long as I don't forget (laughs) while I'm asleep tonight. We've come pretty much to the end of our talk, but we always end every conversation with seven quick questions. That, that are generally about communication, sometimes in a far-fetched way. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Well, I really
2: would like to understand the metaphysics of living. And we talked about art. That's why I still engage in art. Scientists try to tackle that. Uh, but I still think that it's in the realm of poetry and literature. But I do think if it is in that realm, just like Funis anteceded our understanding of generalization, I'd like to understand um, the metaphysics of life, if that's not too Hmm. pompous.
1: Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? It depends who I'm talking to.
2: (laughs) When I'm debating with someone of my peers, I am willing to be like Carl in my chapter, um, as forthright as I need to be. If they're wrong, when I talk to people who are not, of course, in the sciences, I try to help them understand why they're wrong by using
1: examples. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Uh, do I have any jokes that are funny about Alzheimer's? People always <laughs> people always tell me I have one. I and, I and no one has yet given me one. Maybe because I'm so plugged into the suffering of my patients. I'm not. I'm. I, I love humor. I. I love absurd. You know, absurdism. But when it comes to Alzheimer's, I, I, there's nothing funny.
1: It's just <laughs> not funny. Yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: I often find that I stop listening. Again, depends who it is. If it's someone close, I'll call them. And if it's someone, a bore at a party, I'll just, you know, not, I'll stop listening. The nice thing about our brain is that we have off switches.
1: (laughs) The trouble is they don't notice that you've stopped listening.
2: (laughs) That's right. And so sooner or later they do. But that that is a common problem, the the pontificator.
1: Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a real, authentic conversation?
2: I think keeping it personal. I think when people talk in abstracts, and even if it's abstracts about politics, you know, withdrawal from Afghanistan. I was just at a dinner party and I made it very personal. I talked about my military experience. I asked the person who was pontificating, do you have any family members in Afghanistan who served? Uh, So I think it's often helpful I'm happy to think lofty and, 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 and in generalities, but I think it's always good to keep things personal.
1: What gives you confidence?
2: I'm slow to respond because I, I, I think maybe because I grew up in Israel and I'm in New York or people consider me confident, but I don't consider my, myself confident. I, I am confident in uh, general rules of life. I'm confident that if you truth seek, and, you're, and you do that uh, unwaveringly, that that will lead to the truth. But I also know how easy it is to be led astray. So I, I, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, uh, but I am confident in first principles. So I'm confident in the principle that we'll get to Alzheimer's if we understand why the hippocampus is first. Those are the kind of principles that I'm confident in.
1: Okay, last question what book changed your
2: life? Because there've been so many, I'll talk about a book that really influenced me enough last summer to be considered a real uh, life changer. Uh, I read um, a number of biographies and the poems of Walt Whitman, and I was just absolutely blown away. First of all, about his metaphysical understanding of memory. Secondly, on the, particularly the biography part, on how everything that he was grappling with, because he was very much involved with the Civil War, uh, is pertinent today in terms of the vitriol and, and and the polarization. So that really changed me last summer, and it's still with me today.
1: I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I really, I'm grateful to you for spending the time with me. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Alan. This has really been uh, interesting and uh, excellent questions. And I do thank you for your interest.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Scott Small is director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. His new book is called Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Marin Alsop, the first woman conductor of a major symphony orchestra. She recently stepped down from 13 years as conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, and she's about to begin a fall season that involves conducting in five different countries on three continents. Early in our talk, I raised a kind of impertinent question. Just what does a conductor actually do?
3: The conductor is the messenger of the composer. It's almost like being a director. You know, you, you, you read the script and you have to bring the creator's words to life. For In my case, I have to bring the notes, the creator's notes to life through my musicians to the audience, all in the service of the composer. So it's acting as a conduit In many ways, and and perhaps that's so apropos that the term conductor was coined, because it really, the conductor is the conduit for the musicians to each other, for the musicians to the audience, for the composer to the musicians, for the composer to the audience. So um, it's it's really a multifaceted role.
1: Marin Alsop After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger
3: the fight, the better the reward. Medella, the mark of the fight. Brick responsibly, beer reported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.